This Slate spoiler special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILERS. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on The Wolf of Wall Street, the new Martin Scorsese, actually not so new Martin Scorsese film. Uh, Joining me from our Washington studio is Dan Coy. Say, Dan. Hey, Dana. You're a senior editor at Slate. Is that fair to say? That is completely (laughs) fair to say. I would not dispute that assertion in a court of law. And it was your idea to go back and, and spoil, not re-spoil, but spoil the not-so-new-anymore Wolf of Wall Street, in part because it has a full slate of Oscar nominations, right? Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor best for Leonardo actor. DiCaprio, and Best Supporting for Jonah Hill, correct? Did right. I get those right? Right. And also because, like, so I got a text from my dad, like, three days ago that he lives in Wisconsin, and he was like, I just saw Wolf of Wall Street. I want to talk about it. And I think that there are a lot of people who, in the wake of the Oscar nominations, are just seeing this movie and are looking uh, to discuss it. And yeah, so it's I, the most. I, I think it's the most fought audience. about movie on my Twitter feed for sure. Between this and American oh, yeah. Hustle, and some sort of strange factionality has emerged that, where you have to love one or the other. I don't love either one of the movies actually, um, but this one probably less. Whereas you, I'm just discovering now, we didn't see it together. We're a fan. Yes, I like this much better than American Hustle. Uh, and it's one of my, I would say, one of my favorite movies of the year. All right. Well, so I guess you're going to be one of those people, like all of the uh, the fellow critics on my Twitter feed who are browbeating me and telling me that I'm watching it wrong, because I am of the party that this movie is at least an hour too long. I think we should get into um, sort of the main, sort of the main argumentative points about it. But first, maybe we should briefly summarize the movie itself. And we both saw it at this point over a month ago. Uh, right. I really wanted to re-see it for this podcast, but honestly, including the travel time, that's a five-hour commitment that I just haven't been able to make. So can you remind me of how it begins? I remember the ending very clearly, but how does how is it framed at the beginning? And it's framed basically in voiceover. Like, it starts with the dwarf-tossing scene that's right. um, in the offices of uh, Jordan Belfort's firm. Um, but then it basically almost immediately goes back to his career. I mean, he's the whole movie is presented in voiceover with Jordan Belfort, played by um, Leonardo DiCaprio, telling us the story of his epic rise and rise and rise and rise and rise and fall. Um, I should also note that I also haven't seen the movie in about a month. Um, but uh, I did go back and revisit this movie, not by rewatching it, but by watching the four minute and twenty nine second slacktery supercut of every fuck in the Wolf of Wall Street, which also serves coincidentally, not coincidentally, as an excellent actual plot summary of the movie because it contains just a tiny bit of almost every single scene in the movie. So it, is, it reminded me of the movie's structure, its pace. Uh, and the fact that even in a supercut of just F-bombs, some individual scenes still would go on for right. 20 or 25 seconds because there are so many fucks in them. So not having seen the supercut and remembering how many F-bombs there are, how is it done? Do they embed it in a full line of dialogue or are they just going from, from one fuck to the next? Like It's just from one fuck to the gunfire. next except for that you do get to hear Jonah Hill say the entire line, what are you, the fucking emperor of Fucksville? Come down from Fucksville? <laughs> Uh, Wait, who wrote, so the, anyways, who wrote the screenplay again? Uh, it's Terrence Winter. Right, of course. Uh, yeah, I wrote it. Um, 
So, yeah, so Jordan Belfort is telling us the story of his epic rise, which begins with him getting a job at a stock brokerage where his boss, Matthew McConaughey, gives him a sort of crazy uh, cocaine-laced motivational speech over lunch. Um, But Belfort almost immediately loses his job on Black Friday. He goes to work in Long Island um, selling penny stocks uh, at a boiler room firm in, like, a horrible storefront, but soon is building an empire based on uh, semi-shady, slightly illegal legal, totally gross sales of almost worthless stocks to total schmoes. Um, he is soon builds his company into a massive, extremely successful firm. Um, he dumps his first wife for a totally hot second wife. Um, he hires Jonah Hill as his lieutenant. Um, he, uh, let's see, hire, hires Carl Reiner as sort of his wingman slash, uh, like, Voice of conscience, even though he never listens to him. Wait a minute, uh, no, are you Carl talking about Reiner, Rob Reiner? Rob Reiner. R- Rob Reiner's his father, right? Rob yeah, Reiner his plays dad. his father, which is not yeah. very clearly established, right? Do we ever see his mother? We don't learn, really learn anything about his background. His father is mainly seen as, as you say, sort of a, a check on his conscience, somebody who right. appears every once in a while to remind him that, you know, acquisition isn't everything. <laughs> right. We do. We do see the mom once, like while Rob Reiner is swearing at the TV. Um, uh, and anyway, so we are tracking really basically that, I mean, the first two thirds of the movie is basically a chronicle of amazing, outlandish, outrageous success. Um, these stockbrokers at this firm live large and they live in the, in the shadow and image of their leader, Jordan Belfort, who believes in things like introducing dwarf tossing into the office space or hiring a marching band or a bunch of naked hookers to come in and celebrate a good week or doing every kind of drug imaginable uh, at, a, at the office summer party um, it's to the point where everyone's high on quaaludes and his lieutenant Jonah Hill can't stop himself from publicly masturbating at the sight of a beautiful woman. Um, Wait, what and, are you marking as the, as the two-thirds of the way through point where it, that continuous crescendo stops happening? Well, it changes. The movie changes somewhat, um, I think, from being somewhat celebratory in a way that we are supposed to sort of buy into at least a little bit, even as we recognize its grossness, into a different kind of movie in which it all becomes even more horrible and prolonged and extenuated, which I think happens as our we were talking about with our producer um, before we even Chris before we even started, which happens at the moment when Jordan Belfort, under s- total investigation by the FBI led by Kyle Chandler um, as the lead investigator. Um, announces that he's going to make a deal. He's going to strike a deal with the feds to save the firm and to get out and to pledge that he won't be involved in stockbroking ever again. And he gets up in front of the firm to make this big speech uh, that is very emotional and everyone in the firm is in tears and he has this incredible interaction with with this woman who's one of the first people at the firm whose life he saved, she says. And at the end of the speech, he says... Who's never been a character in the movie previously, I say. That's correct. That's correct. Um, uh, and at the end of the speech, he says, you know what? Fuck them. I'm not leaving. I'm staying here in the firm. And so a moment that we think is going to be as viewers, or at least I thought was going to be, oh, well, here's where, here's where things calm down and, and we're going to move into like the afterlife of this man's career. Instead, everything just gets even crazier and he's at the firm in clear violation of the law and of everything that is probably good for the firm and, and him 
and his career, and everything just gets uglier and grosser, and planes crash and people die, and uh, cars are run into, and horrific amounts of quaaludes are taken, and he is eventually taken down by Kyle Chandler and uh, and goes to jail. Right. Yeah. So I guess I guess you could see that scene, which I agree in and of itself is, a, is an excellent scene when he gives the pep talk to his people. And then in the course of the pep talk, gets so kind of drunk on his own power that he decides to, re- to reverse course and not quit. Not power, love. Drunk on his love for all his coworkers and all that he's built. I don't know. I mean, given the fact that I never understood any character's motivations in this movie, I'll, I'll take your word on it. I mean, now you're turning you're turning me against it, Dan, by being so pro. I mean, can you agree with me that there are some problems with pacing and structure in this movie and that it, it, it it's its attempt to exhaust its audience, which while perhaps performing, you know, the very excess that Jordan Belfort is living, et cetera, et cetera. I know this is the argument in favor of the movie is still just not it's not effective pacing. Uh I would be. You will not per- grant me that. No, I'll grant you that, but I don't think I will grant it to the extent that you would like. Like, I think in the end, it's the right aesthetic choice to make this movie over large, over long, and packed to the gills with insanity. Like, I just think that it works, and I think that I. But I also wouldn't say that I agree. I mean, there has been a huge critical debate about this movie, and you were right that a lot of people's response to people like you who feel like the movie doesn't work on a pacing level is to tell you, oh, you're watching it wrong. I'm not going to say that because I think that that is fucking bullshit, if I may borrow a phrase from Jordan Belfort. Like, telling people how to watch a movie is, like, the worst kind of being a dick there is. But I – but I and I will say that I wouldn't be unhappy with a version of this movie that was maybe, like, half an hour shorter. Um, but I will say that I, I don't agree with – proponents of the movie who make the argument that the whole movie is meant to alienate you from um, the from the excesses of Jordan Belfort's life that anyone who that any you know prole who sees this movie and identifies with Jordan Belfort or idealizes the wealth that he gains is watching it wrong too which is another argument that is coming up all the time I think that the movie is designed to be sort of grossly alluring for its first two-thirds and then intentionally repulsive in its last third. And and I think that that's a deliberate aesthetic choice and one that really worked for me. As gross as I found the exploits of Jordan Belfort and his cronies in the first two hours of the movie, there is also there are also moments scattered all over it that are designed to make you and made me feel as an audience member just for a moment, oh, man, wouldn't it be great to have that kind of fuck you money? And throw some dwarves around. And throws well, I didn't love the dwarf throwing so much, although there were plenty of, like, I, I have to admit, I don't think it would be unfun for a high school marching band to just suddenly come into our offices. Like, in their underwear. In their underwear. Why not? <laughs> Why the hell not? I, f- I think that I'm not as extreme a supporter of this movie as many people are, and I'm not going to tell people who didn't like it, like my, or, or who felt, it, who didn't like it, or who thought it was just way too long that they're watching it wrong. I, I mean, I don't, I don't believe that necessarily. But I do think that I bought into those aesthetic choices and they felt right to me. And I, and I didn't find myself bored in this, even at three hours, even, even 
even through its repetitiveness, I did not find myself bored because I I was engaged enough with the energy of the filmmaking and the verbal energy of the script and the fun of the performances that I didn't get bored in this movie in the way that I know other people did. Yeah, energy is not something that the movie lacks at all. I mean, I feel like right. it's, in, in it's, a way... It's, it's exhausting. It's, it's yes. right. It's, it's one str- strung together. It's a, it's a long sequence of strung together, very high energy, very gonzo set pieces. And early yeah. on, those things were getting me really amped up for the movie to come. For example, the Matthew McConaughey character. But he then disappears from the movie entirely. I mean, am That's I from true. some fuddy-duddy film school school of film watching that I would actually like interesting characters to recur in the movie? Both him <laughs> and the woman, the woman who you mentioned who supposedly Jordan Belfort saved from single motherhood and poverty, you know, who's used as this example in his big turnaround speech, are, are just one, one scene only characters. And that yep. to me just seemed like a screenwriting problem. And Spike Jones. Spike Jones is in this movie in a one scene only. Oh, I missed that performance. Yes, he's the guy. So when Jordan Belfort um, gets laid off on Black Friday and then ends up in that like strip mall boiler room, he's the guy who gives him his job interview. Who's like, these are the these are the penny stocks that we're going to sell to idiots. Here's the pink sheet. That's Spike Jones. Oh, funny! I remember that, that scene, role. but but I, I that completely went by me. Another interesting character I would love to see a whole separate movie about, and I also just happen to love this character actor is Shea Wiggum as the yacht captain, the badly treated yacht captain, <laughs> oh, yeah. who warns that, that there guy. may be some light chop on the way to Monaco. Remember? <laughs> <laughs> and then the boat completely is destroyed as Jordan Belfort watches the plane go down next to him that was supposed to be his ride out of town. Yeah, that scene had a kind of comic surrealism that that was great. I mean, there were many. Individual individual scenes that had they been excerpted from the movie, including the big comic set piece, of course, when Jordan Belfort and uh, uh, the Jonah Hill character, whose name I'm forgetting now, take so many quaaludes that they lose bodily function and, and Leo is forced to crawl to his Lamborghini with no, yeah. you know, no, essentially no muscles or bones working. All right. Yeah, that Donnie would be... Azoff is Jonah Hill. Donnie Azoff. Yes, yes. Thank you. That's an amazing sequence. It's like 25 minutes long. And it sort of comes back to like, it is true that the movie is probably too long, but the things that make it too long, you know, the first thing that almost any screenwriting pro would suggest you cut out of this movie is, well, that doesn't have to be 25 minutes of him crawling around in the Lamborghini. But I, I feel like it does have to be 25 minutes of him crawling around to well, the Lamborghini. Well, let's, like, let's allow that it does. That for anything. Let's actually allow that it does. And that that scene, which is also, if I remember right, maybe it's not one take, but it's a couple very long takes, right? So yes. it was also just, it's it's an impressive comic performance and then it had to be produced on the spot and not, not pieced together. Um, but let's allow that it did have to be that long. Then let's not proceed it with 14 other very similar scenes of Jonah Hill and Leo DiCaprio getting wasted and doing stupid stuff. I mean, I just, I was so burned out at that point on their bad behavior while high that even though I could appreciate kind of the, the virtuosity of, of Leo's performance in that scene, I was also just sick of it. Like, get on with it. All right. I definitely want to get to Leo's performance, which is, of course, the central performance that will make or break this movie. But first, let's take a break for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Slate Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code SPOILERS. Squarespace is constantly improving their platform with new features, new designs, and even better support. They have beautiful designs for you to start with and all the style options you need to create a unique website for you or your business. It's really easy to use, but if you need some help, they also have an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The service starts at just $8 a month and includes a free domain name if you sign up for one year. And every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look great on every device, every time. 
Again, you can start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website right now when you sign up for Squarespace using the show's offer code, SPOILERS, to get 10% off your first purchase. The Spoiler Special thanks Squarespace for their support. All right, well, let's talk about Leo's performance because um, I think I'm not going to convince you that all two hours and 59 minutes were basically necessary to this movie. But uh, maybe you might agree with me that I do think that this is a, a career high performance from Leonardo DiCaprio, who I have liked in a lot of other movies, but who I have not particularly liked in Martin Scorsese movies in the past. Like, I have found him sort of overly mannered and self-serious and sort of wrapped up, it seems to me, as an outside viewer, in the allure of being in a mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese movie. So you're talking when, about Shutter Island and The Departed and performances like that. Yeah, and especially in Gangs of New York, where... He just – and in The Aviator too where he just seemed to me to be like I'm going for something big and important here. And the reason why is because I'm teamed up with Martin Scorsese, the great filmmaker of his generation. And part of it is that you see in interviews and in public you know, speeches and in award ceremonies how much deep respect Leonardo DiCaprio has for Martin Scorsese, which I appreciate and I'm glad. And I'm glad that these two have sort of made this decade-long journey together in a way that has – reintroduced Martin Scorsese as a filmmaker to, I think, an entirely new generation of filmgoers. But that doesn't mean that I've liked those performances in those movies. But in this movie, he just seems so much looser and more relaxed and more willing to make a fool out of himself. And partially that's, of course, the character. The character makes a fool out of himself. But there's also a real flair to this performance that I haven't seen, you know, in – uh, you know Howard Hawks crouching in a corner with long fingernails. Like there's wait there's Howard Hawks. Fun. <laughs> wait, I want to see that movie. No, no Howard Hawks. <laughs> ah, Howard Hughes. Rob and then Reiner, he goes and Carl makes Reiner. only angels have wings, and then he right. goes and crouches in the corner somewhere. That was a that was a glorious moment in the history of cinema. Um, <laughs> but but this was just way more fun to me. This performance was way more fun to me, and I think the movie would not have worked nearly as well if it didn't have that kind of comic ingenuity in basically every scene. I mean, the, Leonardo DiCaprio is is almost everywhere in this movie. Um, and and I I really loved him in it. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, he, he is, you're right, he's loose, he's funny, and it's a power, just like I was saying that you can't deny that this movie is, is, is powerful and intense, right? His performance is powerful and intense. I don't know that I had a Leo revelation or that I saw him do anything I had never seen him do before, but it is a less-mannered movie. It's a less-mannered movie overall, not just the performance, but the whole approach to the material, I think I would say, is looser, looser to the point of being perhaps self-indulgent. You know, I just, I really think maybe Marty and Leo are surrounded by too many yes-men at this point or something. I really feel like their loved ones needed to intervene <laughs> and talk about so, the length So they've got the same unvarying problem tone. as Jordan Belfort. They, Jordan Belfort also... Too many yes men. Yeah, so I can't escape. It's all going to become this recursive meta you know, right. ball. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I've seen. I saw Leo do things in this movie I never saw him do before. I never saw him with a candle up his ass before. <laughs> For example, like I, maybe that was in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, but I don't remember that scene. Well, so okay, there's another scene where interesting <laughs> roads could have been gone down. 
Okay, we, we learn in that one scene that he's something of a masochist, right? He is hiring yes. this dominatrix hooker to burn a candle in his ass and insult him and beat him. I mean, that is a moment when some side of the character that's maybe unexpected, right? That he's not just this kind of appetitive baby who wants to be catered to all the time, but he feels some kind of need for, for punishment or domination. That would have been an interesting road to go down. I just I just didn't think this movie, I mean, this written by the guy who wrote The Sopranos, he's capable of exploring why a character is dark and appetitive and screwed up. And he doesn't need to just remain on the surface the entire time for three hours. I think both likers and haters of the movie would agree and have agreed in print that the most powerful or one of the most powerful scenes is with Kyle Chandler as the FBI agent on the yacht, right? Where the two of them are playing this kind of cat and mouse game and Chandler is trying to get Leo DiCaprio's character to bribe him, openly bribe him so that he can then take haul him in. That's a really great scene and it doesn't really resemble any other scene in the movie. I mean, we don't we don't see a lot of interaction between them. We don't learn anything much about Kyle Chandler's home life. There's one other excellent silent scene of Kyle Chandler going home on the subway, looking around at the faces around him and thinking about something Leo said about, oh, you, you're going home on the subway like a loser, right? But we don't really get any glimpse of the, the world of normal people, normal schmoes that Leo and his firm are exploiting. So also, anyone who argues that, you know, this is some sort of Bernie Madoff allegory, not that it needs to be that, but that it has something to say about, you know, the current financial crisis or about sort of uh, financial speculation and exploitation in general, they don't really have a leg to stand on because I feel like the movie's only interested in one aspect of that, which is the, you know, excessive consumption of the 1%. Yeah, well, yes. Any argument that this movie has something to say about the actual relationship of Wall Street to the economic system or to ordinary investors is uh, deluding themselves. But I do think the movie has something very specific to say about that 1% and about the relentless pursuit of wealth above all else. Um, It's a message that is a little weird coming from millionaires, as is always the case in Hollywood. But I do think that it's an interesting one and one that, that is that it's been fun watching people respond to as this movie has spread wider and wider. I have a very vivid memory of when we saw this movie um, uh, in the in the bathroom afterwards. As I was washing my hands, there was a guy at the urinal saying to the guy next to him, man, if he had just taken that deal and left the firm when the gay gave him that deal, that movie would have had a happy ending. And I love the fact that People are responding to this movie and to the ostentatious and total crazy pursuit of wealth in it in really different ways. Like I do feel like there is going to be a whole like generation of bros in training who are going to adopt this movie as a kind of like uh, like a Bible, right? And I also appreciate that there is going to be a whole generation of like sensitive future filmmakers who are going to adopt this as a horrified dystopian view of all that they escape by not going into stock brokering. Like I like the the 10,000 different ways that you can look at this movie and that I think people are looking at this movie and I like that it provokes debate. And I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that if this was a movie that didn't have that much excess and that did give us a bunch of nice scenes about Kyle Chandler and his family at home in Brooklyn or wherever he lives and that gave us a bunch of backstory of that woman uh, who worked at the firm and who more sensitively explored Jordan Belfort's masochistic side, it wouldn't be that movie. It wouldn't be a movie that drove everyone crazy and made everyone angry and I would miss it. I would miss that movie. Well, 
I think that kind of says it all, Dan. And I think I think you're right. I mean, I don't I don't I don't know that I would miss this movie if it didn't exist, but I would miss the conversations about it. And and so so I will grant you that point. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? I'd love to talk at least for a second about the greatness that is Margot Robbie, the Australian actress who plays um, uh, Jordan Belfort's second wife. Um, the what she she's like the queen of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge or the queen of Staten Island or what is she? What Was it she no the Duchess herself? of Bay Ridge? The Duchess of Bay Ridge. That's right. Um, she is amazing in this movie. Like one of my great sadnesses about the Oscars was that she they never really got a campaign together for her, even though I and I think it's a role that's even easily overlooked because she's naked a lot and because the character plays on her sex appeal a lot. Um, but I also think it's a really great and volatile and scary comic performance. Um, that generates some of the movie's best scenes. Completely agree. Scenes. Completely agree. Yeah. And I mean, the way the actress looks, she's so Barbie doll perfect that it's sort of hard at first to, to realize that her character could be anything other than the sex toy of Jordan Belfort. But there's so many scenes where she turns that around in all kinds of wicked and interesting ways. And once again, to resume my litany of complaints about this movie that all resemble each other, there was a great <laughs> scene that had no follow-up, um, which was the scene where she kind of sexually humiliates him in front of the daughter's crib. You remember right. that? And then in he the turns it around. Yeah. Right. And and so she essentially, you know, sort of displays her private parts and lets him know he can't have them. And as he's kind of, you know, slavering for her, he then moves her into a position where she's in front of the security camera. So all the security guys in their huge mansion are checking out her undercarriage. And it's really, it's just a, a funny and cruel scene on both sides. And I felt like if there were more scenes like that, it was almost like a Louis Bunuel kind of moment, you know, of mutual sexual humiliation and uh, and, and power. And yet that also just sort of got, got thrown away with the women. I didn't think it got thrown away, though, because I felt like it was a sequel to the candle up the ass scene. And it was a prelude to their final interaction, which is her disgustedly allowing him to have sex with her one more time and even like grossly encouraging him in the act and then immediately afterwards saying that is the last you will ever get to do that because we're getting a divorce and I hate you and then he punches her and tries to steal their baby which is like a horrifying scene but struck me as like the natural end point of this game that we had seen him play on and off throughout the movie. Yeah, I mean, up to the point of stealing the child, I think I agree with you. Maybe the stealing the child actually happened, and so it's, it's absurd for me to say, you know, that it, that it was too much. But that scene too quickly became this kind of grand guignol for me. I think I had given up on the relationship and caring about the relationship at that point. I think I'd given mm-hmm. up on the movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't, which is in, which is you know, I guess the difference in the way that we responded to this is that each pylon for me got me more interested and each pylon for you drove you away. And I think that those responses have been more or less evenly split among everyone I know. I mean, from critic to non-critic to average moviegoer who doesn't see that many things but wants to see this because they've heard a lot about it, I basically hear those two diametrically opposed responses, that they embraced the excess or that they were turned off and bored by the excess. And I and I think many moviegoers who haven't seen the movie can potentially even predict their response to it based on hearing us sort of make our points. Can just since we're talking about supporting performances, the last one I'll just bring up is is Jonah Hill. What did you think of him in this and did it did it re- reveal a new side of Jonah Hill to you other than his magnificent false teeth? His teeth were amazing. Um I liked Jonah Hill in this movie, but it did not strike me as 
it struck me as a good performance that was not substantially different from other good performances that he's given. It's just that he gets more a little bit more serious stuff to play but like he's not that different than sort of weird dudes he's played in straight comedies um it's just that that weird dude from a straight comedy is placed in this unbelievably uh like rich real life scenario you know it's almost like if you took like i'm trying to think like it's like if you took uh uh you know Steve Carell from the Forty Year Old Virgin, and just put him in a drama. Like, what happens then? Yeah, I would agree. I think Moneyball was the was the revelation Jonah Hill role for me. The moment that he stopped just being that annoying fat guy in every Judd Apatow comedy and started to be a distinct comic presence. And yeah, he's he's good in this role, but yeah, I don't I don't see any any revelations there. And and the relationship was boring to me. I mean, it was exactly the same from the minute they first smoked crack together in the back of that restaurant, right from the ba- <laughs> their first afternoon all the way through. There was no growth or change, but I'm going to get off of that hobby horse because I've been on it for this entire spoiler. <laughs> okay, Dan, thank you so much. You haven't joined me. You were one of my earliest spoiler companions back in the days when our studio had caveman handprints on the wall, and it's good I to remember. have you back. I'm happy to be back. We'll do more soon. I hope so. For example, we could start next week with the Lego movie and RoboCop. Would you be game for those? I'm totally up for the Lego movie, but I bet you can find someone who's going to dig RoboCop more than me. Yeah, there's going to be somebody in this late New York office, maybe Chris Wade, who's just all over (laughs) RoboCop. All right. Thanks again, Dan. Thanks, Dana. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.